Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Are you looking to take your media strategy to the next level and make impact with millions of customers? Walmart Connect harnesses the massive reach of America's number one retailer. They can help you connect more meaningfully with Walmart's 139 million weekly online and in-store customers to find the right audience for your message. They use Walmart's proprietary customer purchase data to help you precisely target even niche audiences at scale. Visit walmartconnect.com today to see how they can help you find the customers you want at the scale you need. MySpace gradually turned into a very unsafe place to go online. Welcome to episode 51 of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails. What led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies. I am your host, Deborah Chen, and this week we'll be looking at what was once the world's dominating social networking company, MySpace. It was the summer of 2005 when one of the biggest deals in internet history was announced. News Corp, famously known as Rupert Murdoch's media empire, made a bid to acquire the extremely successful and popular social networking company, MySpace. That was already garnering a lot of popularity with tens of millions of teens and young adults across the globe. It was an audience that Murdoch and his team thought would help invigorate their media business. This unprecedented acquisition was one of the largest of its time, comprising a $580 million cash offer to own the site that had grown to over 16 million monthly users, joined by celebrity musicians like the Black Eyed Peas, REM, and Nine Inch Nails. Would this marriage of modern technology and traditional media be one that made sense? 
Murdoch was quoted saying that he saw a massive opportunity to cross-pollinate the popularity of MySpace with News Corp's vast online assets to provide a rich experience for all internet users. And to the business world, it seemed that with its established popularity and the backing of the media giant, MySpace would have the world at its fingertips. Surely, the social media pioneer would have the longevity to stay on top as the world's biggest player in the online digital world. To the outside, it appeared that MySpace was going to be unstoppable. Welcome to the story of MySpace, social networking since 2003, unfriended by 2009. Totally dating myself here, but I was already an adult during the onset of the whole Web 2.0 era, when the internet transformed the way that we connected and communicated. So I remember when AOL Instant Messenger first came around and allowed us to connect in a way we never thought possible by pinging messages back and forth with friends, coworkers, and people with the same interest. And you did so with cringeworthy screen names like cool guy 89 or brown eyed girl 44. This gave users an online identity that they created for themselves to interact with the world online. This then naturally evolved into some of the earliest social networking sites like Friendster. And I remember how incredible Friendster was because the concept was that you can connect with new people through the people that you already knew, friends of friends. So it felt like a safer forum. And then I started hearing about MySpace, which very quickly eclipsed Friendster, and it gained this cult-like mass appeal so quickly that by the time I joined, there were already tons of members from around the world. And on top of that, it included the bands and celebrities that I liked and wanted to follow. And for a few short years, MySpace was a significant part of daily life for many extending their relationships beyond school hours and freeing up their parents' phone lines. With such a dedicated and growing audience, it seemed like nothing was standing in the way of MySpace and its endeavor to take over the world. MySpace back in the day was the first really successful social media network. And I think we think about it today mainly as a failure, but it was the first example of that kind of site that a lot of people used. And at the time, it seemed unstoppable. That was Tom Standage, deputy editor at The Economist, who's a subject matter expert on the history of social media and is also an author of six books, including one called Writing on the Wall, Social Media, The First 2000 Years. Throughout this episode, he'll be breaking down MySpace for us, what made it so popular, and then what set it on the path to disaster. For us to understand what made MySpace so innovative, we need to first understand the evolution of the internet and how people initially used it to connect. Back in the day, in the 1990s, when people were starting to go onto the internet and the web in large numbers, 
very often you'd sign up for an internet account and you'd get a certain amount of free web space and you could make your own web page. And it was a very fiddly process, but amazingly, people used to do this. And broadly speaking, there were two kinds of pages that people would make. They would make profile pages. So they'd say, this is me, here's a picture of me, here's a picture of my dog, this is how old I am, this is my email address, these are all the things I like, uh, here are my favorite bands, here are some of my favorite links. And so there was a sort of profile kind of page. And then the other thing people would do is that they would write updates about what they were doing, and then they would add another update to the top of the page. So there were also sort of diary journal style pages that some people were doing that with their personal web space. And that's really what led to, to blogging, that sort of reverse cron feed of stuff that you're doing. People started to make tools to make those kinds of web pages easier to maintain without having to write any code. And then the personal profile kind of page, that was what turned into social networking instead. And so social networks started off as, you know, essentially ways of making friends, keeping track of your friends, um, finding new people you might want to be friends with. And that was all about having this profile page that you could update and put things on. Um, so it was really much simpler than it is today. There were many experimental platforms floating around in the early 2000s, but in 2003, MySpace became the first to fully hatch into a success. It was the brainchild of entrepreneurs Krista Wolf and Tom Anderson. And for those of you that don't know, Tom was everyone's first friend on MySpace. Anyway, Chris and Tom saw an untapped opportunity for brands to advertise on social networks, which was this new advertising medium that would ultimately prove highly lucrative and draw in millions in revenue. Online advertising was still the Wild West and highly unregulated, leaving an open road for MySpace to take off with lightning speed as soon as it was launched. Between Friendster and MySpace, we had two distinct platforms that in a short period of time, demonstrated the evolving interest and taste of its members. So if you remember, Friendster worked as a tool to connect friends within your friends community and using your real name. MySpace had the markings of Friendster, but was by far much more attractive because it was, well, less restrictive, which meant it allowed anyone to browse pages, even without an account, and lets users create online personas. And because MySpace was so accessible and had music plugins built into every user's page, it gave musicians a pioneering way to increase their reach and capture new audiences. Where traditionally, bands had to tour all over the country and play at music venues and dive bars in order to get their name out there, now they were able to reach the masses. They could update fans through a profile page and drop their latest releases with immediate plays and promotion without relying on ticket sales or radio DJs for the success of a single. MySpace got its start because it was popular among bands, particularly in California. And if you look at the company that came before MySpace, that was Friendster. And Friendster was sort of a dating site. The idea was that you would register on the site and you would tell it who all your friends are. People who are friends of your friends are people you might want to date because you're likely to have things in common with them, have friends in common with them, and, and so on. And that became quite a popular site. And one of the things it could do is it would calculate how many potential friends of friends and friends of friends of friends you might have. And that became a very popular feature. But the problem was that recalculating that number took a very long time. And Friendster got slower and slower and slower. And the people who were working on it were really obsessed with adding features to it. And they weren't really concentrating on performance. 
It wasn't long before people got bored of Friendster and started to see MySpace as this fun new service with much better features and functionality. People started to get very frustrated with Friendster and MySpace looked a lot more attractive by comparison. One of the reasons was it went faster. You could really customize the page, the profile page on it. You could add all sorts of things to it, not just your personal details. You could add, you know, music and video and things like that. And also the profile pages were public. So you didn't have to be a MySpace user to visit somebody else's MySpace page. And that was really the key because with Friendster, you couldn't see any Friendster pages at all unless you were also registered for the site. And so this made MySpace a very attractive site bands because they could put up information about when they were playing gigs, they could put up sound clips, and they could essentially have their fans follow them on MySpace and they could see how many fans they had and and they could talk to their fans and so on. And so there was a, a migration of people from Friendster to MySpace because they were frustrated with the limitations of Friendster. But then MySpace really explosively grew during 2004. And so that was really when most people became aware of it and and it sort of appeared on, on the radar of the tech industry. There was also something else that furthered the popularity of MySpace. It was that they allowed everyone to be on, not really policing the personalities on the site. Take model, actress, singer, Tila Tequila as an example. If you don't recall, she was this big sex symbol, a pop culture icon who first started her career as a sexy car import model before making her way to social networking. Friendster felt her material was too risque, but MySpace welcomed her in all of her creative content. In fact, she became so popular on MySpace, which led to her becoming a household name when she landed a reality show called a shot at love with Tila Tequila. She joined Brett Michaels and Flavor Flav in finding love on networks that were beginning to throw entertainment programming in between blocks of music videos. But unlike the Bachelor and Bachelorettes that came before her, Tila Tequila was openly bisexual and the show featured her journey through romance with a house full of 16 men and 16 women. Tila Tequila is an early example of how internet stardom could spark a meteoric rise in entertainment. And very soon after, you had Justin Bieber, Bo Burnham, and Kate Upton, who saw their careers launch along a similar trajectory. And while those successes showcased the power of social networking, even from the start, we'll find out how MySpace's lack of content moderation did ultimately hamper its success and contribute to their downfall. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ready to unlock the full potential of your media spend? Whether you're looking to launch a new product, build your brand, or help increase sales this quarter, Walmart Connect helps brands make an impact with precise targeting, powerful analytics, and the reach of America's number one retailer. Walmart Connect offers solutions for advertisers of all sizes on and off Walmart's digital properties and in their stores. From cost-effective sponsored search and self-serve display ads on Walmart's site and apps to connected TV and off-site media across web and social to in-store activations and live events, Walmart Connect can help you deliver the right content to the right Walmart customer at the right step of their shopping journey. And Walmart Connect's closed-loop measurement means they can track the full impact of your campaign on sales, not just on Walmart's site and app, but also in-store. For some campaigns, they can even provide rest-of-market data that tracks the impact on sales at other retailers. Visit walmartconnect.com today to find out how you can start connecting with Walmart's 139 million weekly online and in-store customers. Walmart Connect. More than media. Meaningful connections. With wind in their sails, MySpace hit exponential growth, gaining millions upon millions of members, and its top users drew media attention to the site, which just helped it grow faster. So fast that in 2005, one of the largest global media conglomerates had them straight in their sights for acquisition. By 2005, MySpace was on top of the world. It had about 25 million users, which was a lot for a social network in those days. Previous social networks had not scaled up that far. Friendster had sort of fallen over when it got to about a million users. So it was a very hot property. And that was when News Corporation, so Rupert Murdoch's uh, conglomerate, bought the company for $580 million. And this was regarded as a very clever move at the time. He had a sort of old media empire. He'd been slow to embrace the internet. And so here he was buying the prize asset of the time. And it was the fifth most popular website in the US at that point. And the following year, it got to 100 million users and it was being valued at $12 billion. So it really did look like a very smart move by News Corp. By October of 2006, MySpace was generating around $30 million per month, half of that coming from display ads. And when News Corp came in, it was this huge international conglomerate with tons of resources and billions of dollars offering MySpace a dream deal and basically saying, continue doing what you're doing and we'll be totally hands off. But we also know that when things seem too good to be true, they usually are. And for a company like News Corp, ad space equaled dollar signs and MySpace was a gold mine. Now with News Corp involved, they brought in a new management team along with lawyers, accountants, layers of management and corporate policies. MySpace went from a comparatively small company with a nimble startup mentality to a bureaucratic, political, slow-moving machine. A stark example that all good things come with a price and a lesson that companies need to move at the speed of culture and that sometimes giant corporations get caught up in death by committee. MySpace's purpose seemed to change following the acquisition and Standage has an explanation for some of the reasons why. For one, the new owners were more inclined to treat the business as, well, a business. 
and they wanted to maximize profits over improving the technology. And as the user base continued to grow, so did the problems. It started to run into problems at exactly this point. The customizable profile pages, one of the things that made MySpace so attractive, were also, because they were customizable, they were vulnerable to being attacked and hijacked and vandalized. And they could be configured so that you could install malicious software through them. So you could basically put a virus on people's computer if they came to your to your profile. And the site was absolutely beset with spammers and fake profiles and sort of aspiring celebrities with hardly any clothes on. And this raised questions about, you know, whether it was suitable for children and whether there needed to be content moderation and age limits and this sort of thing. First, the fake profiles and some of the unfiltered content became an issue for users' parents, and that garnered some unwanted publicity. Second, there was also the issue of having buggy technology. If each user's page was an access point for malicious software and digital vandalism, then MySpace had millions and millions of access points. And third, this all came at a time when the content on the site and the increasing presence of that cash cow became crowded. For obnoxious advertisements, messy placements of ads, and solicitation for people to sign up for credit cards and services. And given the new management team, it seemed that nothing was being done to address any of these concerns. We see this happen all the time in companies. The experience is compromised by the need to grow and maximize revenue at all costs. And consumers feel it, and they react. This version of MySpace was under pressure to drive revenue when other startups were using their capital to create, explore, and innovate. And the problem was that News Corp didn't really address any of these problems. Rupert Murdoch owned lots of newspapers. It's a bit like they'd bought another newspaper, and this was a newspaper with lots of readers, and that meant there was lots of advertising inventory. So as far as News Corp was concerned, this was just a lot of ad inventory, and they weren't investing in the platform, and they weren't getting on top of these technical problems. And so MySpace gradually turned into this sort of really horrible environment that was rather kind of seedy and a very unsafe place to go on online, you might get a a horrible virus. And so people started looking for an alternative. And that's the point where Facebook shows up. And Facebook has a much sort of cleaner and more elitist image. It starts off as something for college kids, gradually gets rolled out to high schools and companies and so on. News Corp saw MySpace as a corporate entity instead of the social experience that people had once gravitated towards. And according to Standage, the mismanagement of the business had a lot to do between MySpace and News Corp's difference in culture and priorities. So I think the big question is, what went wrong, given that they had this new owner and, you know, they seem to be so successful? And I think the answer is really a cultural one, which is that media companies and tech companies are very different things. And um, I speak as somebody who is responsible for tech within a media company. What very often happens is that a media company will launch a product, it'll launch an app or something like that, and then it won't really look after it. And it will say, well, we are iterating on the product, we are changing it because we're putting new content into it all the time. And from a media company's perspective, that's enough. Right, you launch a new magazine and you put new stuff in that magazine every every month and then every few years maybe you redesign it. But you don't drastically rethink it all the time. Whereas a tech product has to actually evolve much more quickly and it has to be aware of what's going on. So you really need to think about it in a fundamentally different way. So I think, you know, tech companies 
work in one way and they're generally not very good at doing media. Media companies work in another way and they're generally not very good at doing tech. And you very rarely get a company that can actually do both of them and understand you know, how to do both sides of things. News Corp is a, an old newspaper empire. And as we know, you know, newspapers have been one of the biggest victims of the rise of the internet. It's decimated their business model. So these are, generally speaking, not companies that really get technology and know how to respond to a changing technological environment. But there was someone or something that did understand the changing tech environment. They had emerged quietly alongside MySpace, popping up around the same time but growing organically. It was no secret that Facebook, then a fresh startup, had designed something in the white space. The company had the ability to move quickly, fixing bugs as they came, redesigning the interface to constantly improve the user experience, and building software to protect users from corporate spamming and junk. Facebook has this very clean design, and it's the absolute opposite of MySpace, and people felt that it was a sort of safer environment. And so just as we saw a sort of migration of people from Friendster to MySpace, we then see this migration from MySpace to Facebook. And there have been various attempts to sort of reboot MySpace since then, but none of them has succeeded. The inevitable, what MySpace might have previously thought unthinkable, occurred in June of 2008, when Facebook's numbers of users surpassed that of MySpace. The fact that MySpace was old news, it was most obvious when Facebook overtook it in registered users, and that happened in early 2009. But actually, the fact that Facebook was the coming thing had been clear for a couple of years before that. I mean, it was when Facebook opened up to anyone age 13 or over, and that happened in September 2006. And that was really the point where Facebook started to grow explosively quickly. And uh, Facebook, unlike these previous companies, was able to cope with the rate of growth. And obviously, it's got to you know almost 3 billion <laughs> users now. So it was really able to cope with that. And compared to MySpace, it was a much better managed platform. It was much cleaner. It was much safer. And so people were, were more confident about using it. So MySpace just looked, by comparison, progressively worse and worse. And, you know, the fewer people were on it, the less it was updated. You go to a profile and no one had written on it or updated it for months or years. It started to get this very dusty, like a, the center of a, of a city that's in decline. It really did feel like that. Standage has had time to evaluate some of the management errors in his book. He addresses what the takeaways were from MySpace. I think there are two big lessons from the story of MySpace. So the first is about culture and exactly this whole problem that, you know, a newspaper company buys a, a website and then it doesn't know how to run it properly. So I think, you know, understanding culture, understanding technology, understanding product development, product management, these are key skills. And they're actually key skills in every industry now. Every industry is expected to have customer service as good as Amazon's or as good as Netflix's. It's expected to have, you know, first-rate technology. And the sad truth is most companies don't. Most companies don't have the best engineers. They don't have good product people. They don't have a, a good sense of how technology relates to their business. So that's a big challenge. But they're always going to be compared to the industry leaders who, who do it really well. And MySpace is a really, really 
good counterexample of where an industry, a dying dinosaurish industry, <laughs> takes over an internet company and just runs it into the ground because it, it thinks about it through the perspective of the old industry, which is this is a lot of advertising inventory rather than what it should have been doing, which is how do we develop this platform? How do we expand this platform? How do we make it more secure and perform better and all those sorts of things? But what may interest you the most these days is the state of affairs with Facebook. Once a life raft for users jumping a sinking ship, Facebook itself is now in trouble. When the site became the de facto social network following MySpace's demise, it spent many years as the undisputed platform of choice with safety tools and privacy that MySpace failed to integrate. But recently, Facebook has been experiencing a rapid decline of its own, both in users and value. The company has seen an exodus of members as it fails to capture the next generation of internet users. And upon announcing its confusing metaverse strategy and rebrand, it has seen an overwhelming increase in expenses. The other companies under its umbrella, Instagram and WhatsApp, have also suffered a similar stagnant growth. Facebook's CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, has acknowledged the uphill battle against its rival, the top-rated video-sharing app TikTok, as a signal that what consumers want is always mutable and constantly evolving. What's really interesting is just in the last couple of years, we're seeing this change again because of the rise of TikTok. And what TikTok does is it has an algorithm that chooses stuff that it thinks you'll like regardless of whether the people who've posted it are your friends or not. It doesn't really have the idea of friends. It's not a social network anymore. Its CEO says it's an entertainment service rather than a social network. And so this period where the way that we sort of interacted with people online by sort of building our friend network online and then attracting new friends and, and so on, I think we're going to look back on this as a, you know, possibly a temporary state of affairs. It was the way that we navigated stuff on the internet for about 20 years, but it looks like it's now coming to an end. What brings tech companies down is always the same fatal flaw. It's the failure to move with changing times. It's the failure to keep up with the next big thing. And eventually, that leaves room for new tech companies to claim their own spaces. It's a cycle and a reminder that technology and people evolve, breeding new opportunities for the birth of new companies. Yet those that don't use the opportunities for innovation will collapse. Just like AOL Messenger, just like Friendster, and just like MySpace. But then again, perhaps this is more similar to the evolution of music. Every generation wants their own voice, their own sound. And even though we go back and listen to our parents' music, what we want is something of our very own. And maybe that's something that technology can't keep up with. Special thanks to Tom Standage for his contributions to this episode and sharing his expertise on what led to the downfall of MySpace. And thank you for tuning in this week to The Great Fail, a program that spotlights some of the most infamous case studies of failed businesses, brands, and ideas, and goes beyond that to garner lessons and wisdom 
so that we all can learn from the greatest mistakes. The Great Fail is part of the Adweek Podcast Network and Acast Creator Network. You can listen and subscribe to all of Adweek's podcasts by visiting adweek.com slash podcast. The research on each episode is extensive, but none of these episodes would be possible without the tireless efforts of researchers, writers, and reporters. They are all credited on thegreatfail.com under our show notes. Connect with us at The Great Fail on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that we can continue bringing you more episodes. And remember, with great failure comes great liability. If you expect your media investment to deliver clear, measurable results, Walmart Connect can help you get there with powerful analytics and the reach of America's number one retailer. Their closed-loop measurement uses Walmart's proprietary customer purchase data to track the impact of your campaigns on sales, not just on Walmart's site and app, but also in-store. For some campaigns, they can even provide rest-of-market data that tracks the impact on sales at other retailers. Visit walmartconnect.com today and see how they can help make your media spend meaningful. Walmart Connect. More than media? Meaningful Connections.